Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. In the world of high finance and get-rich-quick schemes, the name Bernie Madoff is the modern-day poster child for pyramid-building swindlers. But long before Madoff, there was Leo Koritz, Chicago's flim-flam man of the Roaring Twenties. Koritz is the subject of writer and journalist Dean Job's new book, Empire of Deception, the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated the nation. I recently talked with Job about the book and Koritz's place in history. Well, I, I often call him the, uh, the greatest swindler you've never heard of. Uh, it is amazing. Uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, but he really was lost to history. Um, he was running uh, a Ponzi scheme before it had a name, and uh, yet everyone remembers Charles Ponzi. That name is synonymous with the, the Ponzi scheme now. Uh, but this Leo Koritz uh, was getting away with it for uh, 15 years, uh, uh, leading into the 1920s, and is really just uh, his his uh, notoriety is, is just faded, and it, it is quite surprising. Dean, outline for us, as you do in the book, a little bit about, and we know he was an, he was an attorney, but a little bit about this this scheme that uh, that he created. And I, I think that it, it, it involved, he was selling false interest in some, was it in Cuba, or what exactly was his, his scheme? Well, his, his shtick was, uh, and I think folks know what a Ponzi scheme is, is you're selling an investment, but there's nothing there. And all of the dividends and profits you pay to early investors come out of new money. Leo's scheme was he had timberland, vast stretches of timberland in Panama, which was because of the canal building was getting onto the radar of Americans, and it was known that Panama was a, had some rich resources. Um, so for years he ran this scheme, paid very good uh, dividends. Everyone was happy, but Ponzi schemes new, need new money. So in 1921 he decided to discover oil on the property, and that set off a huge boom and uh, demand for his shares, and he was paying, a, believe it or not, 60% annual interest. And that was just, uh, like, everyone wanted in on this uh, this uh, too-good-to-be-true scheme. What Was he doing that simply on the, the new investors he was bringing into the scheme, or did, or did he have some sort of core nucleus of, of, of funds that, that got him started? Well, the, the amazing thing is he had nothing, and he actually began... 18 years before it all fell apart in the 20s, he began uh, writing fake mortgages for clients, very low-key, very, very penny-ante stuff compared to what he, uh, he got into. Uh, but he started small, and, the, and it just snowballed. So he just kept needing new money. But no, when it collapses in 1923, I mean, people who were in long enough, like any Ponzi scheme, might have gotten their money back, would certainly have gotten some back in interest. But there was there was there was very little left, and over the course of this uh, scam, uh, in today's dollars, uh, about four hundred million dollars flowed through his hands. Was was he doing this primarily out of Chicago, and and did the mob have their fingers in his in his scheme? No, quite a few. There's uh, pretty good evidence that quite a few uh, prominent Chicagoans uh, were probably invested. Uh, and when it all uh, blows up, when it when it's exposed, I mean, people were just so embarrassed. I mean, there wasn't a drop of oil being produced in Panama. They had believed uh, that uh, that thousands of barrels were being pumped every day and sold in the United States. I mean, uh, this Leo was so slick and so convincing that no one for a moment suspected. 
so uh, he had hundreds, if not thousands, of investors. But he'd really started with his whole family, all his circle of friends, and it eventually expanded to even some people who put their life savings in. But a lot of very prominent Chicagoans who should have known better were, were burned in this. And looking at some of the uh, some of the historical archive photos in in the book, there's one of his of his home, and I mean, he he apparently lived very well. Well, this is the thing about a Ponzi schemer. Nobody would believe he was a multimillionaire oil baron if he didn't have the swanky uh, Evanston mansion, if he didn't have two Rolls Royces to be chauffeured around in, if he didn't throw elaborate, generous parties and throw his money around. So, of course, uh, money really meant nothing to him because people were throwing it at him. And, and really, there was such a speculative rush uh, for these stocks in this Biano River syndicate. He gave it this grand name. But people were literally begging him to take their money. And when they finally were invested, were just so glad to be part of this exclusive club, which is very much like Bernie Madoff, uh, what happened in Bernie Madoff. I mean, a lot of times people just were so happy to be invested, they they really didn't think through the fact that where are all these phenomenal returns coming from? Now, what, when it started to all un, unravel, I mean, there's, a, there's a photo in the book of his, of his uh, wanted poster. When it all started to un, unravel, what happened? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, I think it just ran out of steam. As I said, now, he, started, he, he attracted more investors by saying he had oil. He attracted more investors by paying huge uh, returns. But he constantly needed new money. So it was running out of time. He was, his health was failing. So in 1923, when a group of investors wanted to go to Panama to tour their oil fields, and I guess you can see where this is heading, uh, he sees them off. Has the, uh, he's brazen enough to tell them, you'll be surprised. And, of course, when they get to Panama about a week later, they can't find anything. By the time word gets back to Chicago, like, my God, we've been duped. He, uh, he had skipped town with what cash he could carry and disappeared. So this was in late 1923. Was this then, uh, is this when he went to Nova Scotia, or where did he? Well, within a few months, he surfaces where I live in Nova Scotia. This is how I found the story. Uh, he shows up under a new name, new persona as a retired, wealthy businessman who's into literature, and he starts partying, uh, renovates a backwoods uh, hunting lodge into this palace, starts partying like the great Gatsby, and uh, gets a whole new circle of friends, and no one hears the wiser. He's got a new name. He's grown a beard. Uh, the, uh, the big Chicago swindle hasn't been front-page news here in Nova Scotia. And for a long time, he's able to pass as this wealthy, generous uh, American. Uh, one of his new friends called him the Jolly Millionaire, and people really enjoyed having him around. You talk about an incident in the book where he almost got stopped. I believe it was was it in Florida somewhere, but uh, because Chicago authorities couldn't get back, couldn't quick enough time, he was able to get on the plane and, and, and leave the country? Well, there was a fellow in Florida who was convinced that he saw Leo Kortz trying to flee to Cuba by plane. It turned out to be one of many loose uh, dead ends or uh, or just false tips or false leads because all of that time, uh, Leo just laid low in uh, New York, uh, only a few blocks from one of the swanky hotels where he used to stay as the rich oil baron. And that's when he grew a beard, came up with this new persona, and that's where he found out about Nova Scotia, which seemed like a very good place to hide out. You mentioned he, he, he hid out in, in, in New York. Did he also 
broaden his his net, so to speak? Was he was he soliciting investors in 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 New York as well in this in this Ponzi scheme? Well, at that point, he had enough money to get him by. So there, basically, once he flees Chicago, there's no more evidence of him pulling swindles other than conning people into believing he was this wealthy uh, uh, retiree under a new name. Uh, but there was some, uh, there were some allegations that he did have some investors in New York, uh, maybe as far as field as the West Coast. Uh, but the problem really was so many people uh, were just unwilling to come forward. In the end, uh, about $2 million, uh in 1920s dollars uh, were brought forward as claims. But it was it was pretty good evidence that a lot of other people just swallowed their losses because they were just so embarrassed to have to come forward, and the and the Chicago papers were just belittling anybody who'd who'd swallowed this uh, this fish story. Uh, Dean, you have a, there's also a photo in the book of 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 May Courts. Do do we know did she have any role in in any of this, or was she just kind of an innocent bystander along for the ride? No, she was among the victims. The whole Courts family were heavily invested. Leo tried to leave them uh, with the equivalent of millions of dollars today. None of them knew, and as soon as they realized, as soon as this blew up in the papers and the manhunt and the water posters, uh, they gave it right back. They gave it to the authorities. They knew it was tainted money. But but don't forget, I mean, they had invested their own money, so they lost along with everybody else. And his wife, no one, no one who knew him, and this is what's so incredible, over the space of almost 20 years, he lied to everyone who ever he ever encountered. His whole family just thought he was the best thing because he was taking care of them. And all of his friends, no one had an inkling. And all the time, single-handedly, he was running this phony empire, and uh, no one was the wiser. And that's that's true. So, no, she uh, she ends up uh, being grilled about every every stick of furniture in the house, every bit of money she might have ever gotten and. And uh, but uh, she and uh, the two kids who were just uh, just abandoned when uh, when Leo skipped down. Do you think he would have been as successful this kind of type of scheme today as opposed to the early twentieth century? Well, you'd like to think no. You'd like to think we're a little more uh, sophisticated. But huge Ponzi schemes being uh, unmasked all the time. Uh, several hundred million dollars in one here in Canada. You've just had in the news a, a huge multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme in China. And by one estimate, as much as $35 billion a year is lost in Ponzi-type schemes. To, you know, So uh, they, it persists. It's such a um, notorious uh, con. But it's not like it's not like a grab and or a bait and switch or a grab and go con. I mean, the, uh, Leo's big problem was everybody trusted him. That got him the money, but he couldn't just leave well, until he did. I mean, it all falls if it all falls apart. Uh, you know, he can't sustain it. So it's not a quick hit kind of con. And and like some Ponzi schemers, Leo just became a victim of his own. Success. Uh, he he started out small, and maybe in the beginning, uh, when it was only a few thousand dollars, maybe he thought he could make it all right. But when it ballooned, uh, he even said in his own words, uh, "The bubble just carried me away." I mean, all he could do was keep paying out phony dividends and taking in money that was going to be invested nowhere. You, you hear the read about the old story about you know how government finally got a hold of, of Al Capone. Is it shocking at all that the, 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 the federal authorities were, were, I guess, either clueless or had no idea what the extent of what he was doing? 
Well, there's, a, there's an interesting backdrop to the whole story in the history of Chicago. This is, of course, the early 20s, the rise of gangs, uh, Al Capone's uh, dominance, the whole prohibition and beer wars. And there's an interesting parallel because the state's attorney, Robert Crow at the time, who ends up leading the manhunt and ends up prosecuting uh, Koritz when he's finally caught, uh, knew Leo. They had been young lawyers together. They were almost the same age. In fact, when they meet 20 years later, they're on a first-name basis still. And so there was an interesting, as I was telling the story, there was an interesting parallel of the rise of Robert Crow through corrupt Chicago politics uh, when politicians needed the muscle and ties of gangland to win at the polls. And that became a whole backdrop to the story. So so there's a lot of sort of Chicago's wicked 20s uh, in here, too. And, uh, you know, the day Leo's arrested in 1924 uh, is the day the papers say someone tried to assassinate Al Capone. So his story is very much in the fabric of uh, of uh, Chicago's uh, 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 rise to prominence as a you know, as, as corrupt and, uh, and gangland. Mm-hmm. In doing the research uh, for, the, for the book, Dean, did, did you gain any insight into, into you know, who he was as a, as a person? Obviously, he was a very good pathological liar, but any insight to, in, just into how, you know, the quality of his life and how he, how he lived doing all of this? He was. Uh, he came over from uh, what's now um, the, uh, the Eastern Czech Republic uh, with his family when he was about eight. Grew up in uh, in what's old town called Old Town now, a Chicago suburb, a very old one. And um, it was a it was an area of German immigrants who were on the make. Uh, one of his neighbors was Dr. Scholl. Another was Oscar Mayer. I mean, these were people who made fortunes. And I think he was caught up in the whole American dream. I think he wanted to get ahead. Um, he just found a, a quick way, a shortcut to doing it. And as I said, uh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't born or he didn't grow up thinking I'll be one of the greatest con men in history. But when he fell into it, he was just so good at it. I, what I find is just how amazing an actor he was, how convincing he had to be. This group that went to Panama, not only did it take them a week to get there, giving Leo lots of time to skip town, it took them five days of fruitless search for any trace of a company, let alone an oil well, before they really believed they'd been duped. And that's how thoroughly convinced they were. They kept thinking they were missing something. And it took them five days for the reality to sink in. I mean, that's when you think of that, uh, just alone talks about how trusted he was. And then as well, when... Charles Ponzi's exposed in 1920, giving the name, the scheme a name. Leo's investors started jokingly calling him Our Ponzi. <laughs> you know, <laughs> our, our Ponzi uh-huh. making tons of money for us, and none of them realized it was true. Is there a particular in, in doing the research? Is there is there a particular uh, story or, or 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 just occurrence that just really struck you that was kind of an aha moment in? in well, um, certainly to um, I, you know when I was uh, when I went to Chicago to do to, to do uh, a lot of my research, uh, walking his old neighborhood, finding uh, sort of this upwardly mobile uh, neighborhood he was in. Uh, but uh, what I found, I, mean, I think, the most were just was just some of the the, the black humor in the whole thing. Uh, you know, Leo uh, calling him our Ponzi. Leo Leo sending them off saying, "You'll be surprised." Uh, knowing, of course, they're going to be really surprised, and uh, and just uh, one one stands out is uh, is uh, Leo as a lawyer was also doing wills for some of his investors, and one of his investors when he's called up says, "Well, of course I'm uh, you know," and he'd been burned for 
tens of thousands of dollars. He said, well, uh, I'm getting a new will done, but I really don't need one as much anymore. <laughs> Thanks to Leo cleaning them out. <laughs> uh, Dean, what do you hope that, that, other than an enjoyable tale, what do you hope that, that readers take away from Empire of Deception? Well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I think it really uh, it, it helps you understand the 20s. Uh, the whole, I mean, this is the launch of the get-rich-quick scheme era, the, the roaring 20s, the whole... Uh, uh, orgy of investment that leads to the great uh, the great crash of twenty nine. Um, I, I think uh, those of us, of course, who remember two thousand and eight, remember other reverses. Look at the market volatility now. I mean, realize that sometimes we don't learn, and um, I, I think it's 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 sometimes upsetting to see that things were the same in the past. But it, it's also interesting to see how human nature doesn't change and. Uh, and as you said, I mean, it, it, it is amazing to me that that even though this is this is a cautionary tw- tale from the 1920s that still applies today, because so many people are still falling for uh, sincere uh, swindlers like a Leo Koritz who can sell them on dreams of vast wealth. That's writer and journalist Dean Job. His book on the life of Leo Koritz is Empire of Deception, the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated the nation. In the Author's Voice is a regular web series of WSIU Radio. I'm Jeff Williams.